The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect official policies or position of the Church of England Pensions Board, any other organisation, employer or their employees. And now, on with the show. Are you feeling special? We are. Welcome to our special one-off edition of Talking Responsibly for Guy Opperman. And welcome back to another much-delayed episode of Talking Responsibly. I'm your host, David Hickey, and I've got with me here in the studio today uh, my co-host, Adam Matthews. Hi, Adam. Hi, David, and very good to be in the studio, and the studio being the kitchen table here. Don't ruin the magic. No, 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 it looks fantastic. We'll, we'll put a picture on the LinkedIn post. It, it, yeah. it does look good. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun being able to uh, actually do this in the room. It's very different from doing it in a Zoom uh, call. So we've got our cups of, of tea and coffee at the ready. Indeed, Clink. and you've given me a Justin Bieber cup, which is lovely. I thought it would suit you uh, quite well. Are you a believer? Uh, I, called. I, I think he's he's got his uh, he's got his positive points. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he was um, much uh, maligned um, by many areas of the media, um, and I think when you make a young man a multi multi millionaire and then put him in the media spotlight and criticise him for some of his life choices, I think that's a little bit unfair. And uh, looking at how he was acting as a millionaire, all I can say is. I'm really glad that social media wasn't following me around when I was his age. That's um, <laughs> all I'm going to say there. And I think there's a, a lot of listeners that are glad that they didn't have social media um, when they were uh, young as well. Um, so this episode um, is our much anticipated uh, episode. Uh, I'm using the term anticipated, uh, hopefully there, um, that... Uh, was discussed with Guy Opperman uh, on episode 18. And Guy, if you remember, Adam, said to us, um, why don't you do uh, an episode where people describe what they would do if they were pensions minister? That's right. And, and Guy Opperman, for, for those that aren't familiar with, with the UK political system, is the uh, Minister for Pensions. And he's in the government with responsibility for um, overseeing pensions industry in the UK. Yeah, pensions and financial inclusion. Oh, yes, and financial uh, inclusion. Although it must be said that our um, our contributors today, who come from our listener base, uh, concentrated more on the pension side than the financial inclusion side, although there are obviously is a very clear uh, crossover between the two. So, shall I cue in our first... Yes. Well, let's just be clear on the brief. The brief was two minutes, and it was to not have a moan and a rant, but actually to have a proposal that the minister could take up and consider. That was the brief? That was, that was absolutely the brief. The idea is what I would do if I were in charge. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cue in the first, uh, the first recording that we have, Good. and we will mark them on content, and we'll mark them on keeping to the brief. <laughs> okay, so first one in coming now. Hi, David, Adam, Dan Mikulskis here, consultant at LCP. Love the show. Love what you guys are doing. Um, big fan. Uh, do keep it up. Really enjoyed the episode with Guy, um, just responding to his challenge um, for a to-do list of what he should do. So my quick to-do list for Guy would be do less, align, future-proof, get more voices, and sort the implementation statement. And just to expand on that super quickly, um, the, the do less point, well, maybe it's obvious. I think everyone's saying it, but there has been a vast amount of regulatory change and consultations, especially if you widen that to include things like um, principles for responsible investment, stewardship code, net zero targets, uh, as well as the multiple consultations coming from the DWP and um, the consultations coming from the Treasury on things like green taxonomy on SDR. It's loads. It's all great stuff. But as, as, as we all know, trustees are, are really um, starting to, to struggle with, with grappling with the volume. So I think a period where we're doing less would be really good. Um, second point related to that alignment. 
feel like what we badly need is really a global sort of system of standards that people are aligning to um, so, so that we do have a, a system that, that, that really works rather than trying to have separate systems for different countries. Specifically to that, things like the taxonomy aligning with, with the EU would be a big, big plus there. And also alignment within the UK system. Clearly, we've got the Treasury that's, that's got a, a regulatory agenda and we've got the DWP um, and we just need to have alignment between these things. Otherwise, you're going to have pension schemes required to do stuff that asset managers aren't required to report on uh, and that won't work. Future proof. Uh, I think TCFD is obviously a, a step forward, but the fact that we've not even fully implemented that yet and we're already consulting on new metrics for that in quite a lot of detail. Uh, I think we do need to make sure that these regulations are really future proof um, and, and some of the TCFD, I think, maybe is going to a little bit too much detail and is at risk of not being really, really perfectly future proof. Uh, and then finally, get more voices. I think the feedback I've got from some of my colleagues is that, um, that there's, a, there's a sense that people would love to see that representatives of things like indigenous communities, representatives of, of minorities and representatives of the sort of global south and emerging markets were being seen to be included in the policymaking here. And there's a lot of really good NGOs that I know you'll be familiar with uh, that, that can perhaps represent some of those voices uh, into policymaking. And finally, sort the implementation statement. It could be good, it could be great, it could be a really, really powerful thing. At the moment, it's not, unfortunately. It's being treated as a bit of a box ticking um, and it really could be could be so much better. So really hoping that can be, um, be improved. That's all, thanks so much. Cool, well, wow. number one, thanks, Dan. Yeah, there's a, there's a hell of a lot. There. There's five things there I counted. Five things there. So first, we need to we need to give Dan marks on yeah. his on his submission. How did he do on timing? How did he do on timing? Well, it was ninety seconds to two minutes. So he's a, he's a fail on timing. He came in at three minutes. Right, but it was three minutes of quality stuff. So yeah, I've got to give concise, him that. It was concise. How do you think he came in on the rest of the brief, Adam? Yeah, I, I mean, it's given quite a lot. I, uh, yeah, less he's done a lot um, already. So I think that do less going forward. Acknowledgement that a lot has been achieved. I suppose that's that's fair. Um, alignment with EU taxonomy. Mm, I, I I mean I think there is a question about alignment with with the EU, and I think that's going to be really important. But at the same time, I do have concerns around the EU taxonomy and whether we actually needed a transition taxonomy. To be honest, and there's a bit of a a, a debate to be had. More voices. That was an interesting one. And equally, the perception that NGOs based here could be effective in interpreting those voices. I, I think that really merits digging into. I, the, the presumption that NGOs are necessarily best placed to represent voices in the global south isn't necessarily an experience I've always seen. Um, but I do get the, the importance of ensuring that different voices are heard in our sort of policymaking because it does implicate... Imp, imp, it, it does impact on on people's lives in all parts of the world when you're a global investor, and then I suppose the the last point was implementation statement. Well, we we discussed that and uh, making it more meaningful. So there's there's a good good line of things there. I'd say about half of them I've, I'm instinctively with. Others I think really need some further thought. What about you? Yeah, I I, I think he's uh, he's done a, a a bang up job there. Um, there's there's not a lot I'm going to disagree with in in what he said. You know, make it. Um, make it more straightforward for us to actually do these things because you know one of the complaints without wanting to sound like a broken record throughout the podcast one of the complaints has uh, been that we've been unable to do the actual work because we've been doing so much work on reporting on the work that we're now not doing because we've not got time to do the work because we're spending all our time on reporting and yep. I, I feel uh, there's a lot of frustration uh, at the moment. I know I've not been able to do quite as much uh, as I would like uh, in actual impactful work um, because of the uh, reporting. But I, I guess one of the, you know, I see why we need reporting. You know, the, it, it has to be meaningful. And if you, you're not doing it meaningfully in reporting it, you know, that there's a question about how well it's being done you know it's mm -hmm. like you know financial reporting yeah. you know the we're we're in a uh, we're going from a kind of wild west where you know ca you know people like us and, and faith and david russell and that you can't we have we had to make it up as we went along because there was no rules yep. um and there's a prof professionalization going on that's a positive thing um but it does it does provide a drag uh, on all of our daily daily work 
and it's going to provide a drag and uh, an inflationary effect on the whole industry going yeah. forward. No, I, I, I agree. I, I thought this point on future proofing was um, good as well, actually, because an, an instinctive desire to jump and align to the latest kind of recommendations from TCFD, I, I get why there is that that pressure. And I get why there's a sort of desire with the I mean, TCFD has in effect become a de facto standard setter. Um, it automatically translates into um, regulation in many places. And, and here there's that sort of instinctive desire to align to it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we should just take everything from that. And I think if you're going to look at future proofing, is, is what's being recommended now going to be as relevant in five years' time, etc.? I think there's some, some sort of longer-term thinking perhaps needs to be embedded in this. And I think that's a good point that warrants a bit of further investigation here. Yeah, I agreed on that. Um, I, I remember that I'm, I'm going to do a plug here of a project I've been working on, which is the UK uh, CFA Climate Investing Certificate. Uh, and I remember when I was on the, the work group for coming up with the syllabus for that, um, there were people, uh, individuals on that saying, well, we need to talk about, you know, this set of standards, this set of standards, this set of standards, this set of standards. And I remember saying at the time, look, by the time we, this is like 2020, we were putting this together. said, so by the time we get to publishing this, a lot of these things that you're mentioning are going to be either completely different or completely irrelevant. So we need a far more general uh, kind of approach to things you know we, we're we're in a, a part of this this kind of j-curve where things are changing so rapidly you there's an element you can't future-proof that strongly because things are improving so rapidly and we need to to be able to incorporate these improvements into our work i mean uh, the difficulty we have is that we're in effect defining the transition in a lot of work that we're doing it we're, we're defining new frameworks for pension funds across multiple assets where we've only just got the net zero investment framework from from the different investor networks that that is something that will evolve equally we've got um engagement with companies that's that's going into real detail now using things like the net zero um, benchmark from climate action 100 but you're at the forefront you're at the, the absolute forefront of defining what the transition looks like for these sectors and the difficult cool thing that you need to manage here and i think this is going to be part of the challenge for the uk treasury and the transition commission is that you don't jump in to sort of stipulate expectation expectation in in regulation but you actually allow some space for companies to manage and try things to fail to succeed and work out what works now it's got to be done in a very tight time scale but if you over regulate you're sort of intervening almost in the space where the companies need to be innovating driving and leading i think there's a really careful sort of line to be danced along here and so i i do think that sort of future proofing understanding where where that line needs to be drawn both in terms of regulating pension funds and in terms of expectations of companies is, is going to be an important one that equally gives us some space to start doing these things as well as just sort of reporting so i think there's some really good points in that first contribution um i do agree with more voices and i know guy himself is somebody that's been challenging the pension sector on more um evidence of our social impact and understanding i don't and i do think generally we've been pretty poor on demonstrating that so i think that's a fair challenge from him but i also think the solution here warrants further thought yeah and i i think it's fair to say we, we're very aware that there's not enough voices anywhere in the the financial space um yeah look at the the asset owners uh, diversity charter trying to um work against that you know it's going to be a long battle yep. so what i'm going to do is i'm going to bring in our second contributor yep. now because uh, good this, start, this, good yeah it's a good start so this second contributor is uh interesting it's a, a mystery contributor who wanted to um put forward some views um but there was no way in which said contributor uh would have been able to get uh, a sign off um so their words are spoken by an actor and when i say actor i actually mean my wife who uh, uh recorded this section so sandra thank you very much uh just for if in case sandra's uh, ceo is listening these are not sandra's words these are the words of our mystery contributor spoken by, by a mystery my, voice by <laughs> my, my wife's mysterious voice welcome so. to the podcast if i your mystery contributor were pensions minister, I would enact the following commitments. 
there would be no more significant changes in relation to ESG reporting in pensions until 2024, at which point we would probably have to legislate for transition plans, sustainability impact reporting, extension of TCFT, more vote reporting, etc. I would simplify the regulations to allow people to combine and republish different reporting as they saw fit. I would press the asset management industry to open to trustee direct voting, however the assets held. I would continue the good work of Guy Opperman to encourage consolidation in both the defined contribution and defined benefit pension schemes. Added to this, I would lobby my colleague Michael Gove to drive consolidation through mergers in the local government pension schemes. I would have my department identify ways to make pension scheme reporting more visible and encourage or carry out assessments of the quality schemes reporting governance. I would lobby within government and make case for stronger action on climate and the real economy, expand the green guilt through additional debt issuance, lowering the threshold for shareholder resolutions, and create investable opportunities for pension schemes that match their risk-return needs. There we go. Wow. Expertly delivered there by our uh, actor. Well, the, 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 the mystery contributor gave a smorgasbord of, um, of ideas there for the minister, I think. And, and wonderfully kept to time as well. Well, exactly. Take, so take on, note, on, Dan. Absolutely. That, that definitely gets a big tick and um, a, a very good contribution. But there was, there was a huge amount in there. Um, I'm still digesting it, to be honest. What do you think, David? What do I think? I, I, again, I'm not going to uh, disagree with much of that. I'm, I'm going to um, zoom in on the um, the bits of consolidation. I know that Guy is very passionate about uh, the consolidation of schemes. Um, I, I think it's very, very sensible as well. Um, I know that it's been looked at in, uh, in DB and DC. Um, I think a lot of people aren't going to do it voluntarily. Um, I think that there's going to be, you know, one of the reasons of all these new um, these new regulations is to make it harder for smaller schemes to exist and encourage uh, consolidation. Now, the problem that means is that the larger schemes still have to do all that stuff. So it creates a drag on that. Surely there's easier ways. Uh, so that that's kind of one thing. And I know we mentioned, we, we spoke with the minister about that. Um, as for... Uh, Speaking to uh, Mr. Gove in his current seat of uh, what is it, the Ministry of Leveling Up, Fun, uh, Leveling Up and Fun. Um, yeah, um, his uh, his current role incorporates um, local government pension schemes. Um, we've had pooling in England and Wales. I'm not a big fan of pooling. I'm allowed to say that. I'm from Scotland. We can look at the uh, <laughs> the English and Welsh schemes and say, this is, looks overcomplicated. Why do you not just merge the funds? And we know why people don't want to merge funds. It's because, you know, the, the, the locals enjoy having the control over the local pension. Um, they enjoy doing the work. It's quite fun being a pension fund trustee at times. You get to go to nice conferences and have interesting chats with fund managers um, and, and do your own you know, ESG uh, important things, you know, whatever it is your, your, um, your pet project is, you can kind of implement that on your local fund. Um, and the, the politicians uh, that are the trustees genuinely seem to enjoy that um, and like having that lever. You, they're not going to give that up. Um, we push through... Uh, pooling, I think the, the natural next step is to take those pooled funds and just merge them and take out that extra layer of governance because that's a huge cost drag for everyone. You're running two sets of management. What's the point? Yeah, I, I think it was really interesting in, in the original podcast with, with the minister when you sort of dug into this and whether we're driving at, at consolidation in the industry through more and more regulations coming in, more and more expectations so that basically we all arrive at the decision it just doesn't make sense or the burden is so great on a small fund that let's start automatically merging ourselves versus a trajectory where they actually legislate to sort of 
create that. I think the Pauline experience has been a really interesting one to observe from the outside. So obviously I'm not um, uh, somebody that is, is part of a pool. We've watched and observed colleagues in that space and we've seen the huge effort that a lot of individuals have really, take, well, yeah, just done and have made it. I, I think it has been successful at one level. I think, um, I think it's been successful in some cases. I think I'm going to put it out there. Some of the pools are rubbish. Yeah. You know, they, they, they just don't appear... I don't understand what the point of them is. You know, and there, there's some pools that have got a very clear... Yeah. Um, I mean, my challenge... I'm judging it by the ones that I work with. Well, you basis. know, let's name but names. We, we can name Brunel, who, who have a, a very strong... Who appear to have a very strong setup. They've certainly got a very strong, uh, responsible investment uh, setup. Um, and I know some of the contractual arrangements they have with their underlying pools... Yeah make them a lot more aligned than some of the other pools that seem like a kind of Wild West approach, not naming any names. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I also work with Bordered Coast and LGPS Central, etc. And I think there you sort of see quite a seriousness in some of the engagement and that Absolutely. sort of connection there. So I've sort of observed in those times, but I, I did observe the, the huge amount of well, the toll it took on the individuals to drive and create them. I, I think there's nobody left in many of these pools that were actually involved in the original creation. So it is a big exercise. But in 10 years' time, will we look back and think, actually, yeah, I, I do see those bigger pools having more influence, more ability to sort of get better products, um, get better relationships with their managers and drive greater impacts. Um, that said, I say that from working for a small pension fund, which um, can equally feel that it's able to sort of drive agendas in its members' interests. But I do think that pooling instinctively to me is is a good thing. Now, whether we could go to a system where we sort of remove a layer of that, I think is um, potentially the next step. And equally, can you see this more across the industry? I, I, but how do you ensure that the values are there and that they're embedded from the outset? And I think that's going to be absolutely critical for, for a fund like us to sort of consider that as a path. And I just wonder if we can create large pools that have got really clear responsible investment ethical values embedded in them and just sort of an open offer in here yeah yeah i i, I think you're right i mean they they if you think pooling i'm i'm going to uh point towards uh you know your your pension fund for for a start adam um you know there, there are multiple different faith funds you know there they might be a, a an idea for having a a pool or merger situation my preference is always mergers in these um where you know it's it's a a religious focused thing where you you know you you do have probably very similar values to the other some of the other church and religious funds in the in the uk um and we're, we're not just necessarily talking you know christian only or or, or you know protestant only you know the you you can have many many different faiths coming together with with very similar kind of ethical approaches or you can have people that just recognize that there's a set of values well there exactly that, that that's the interesting and thing they don't necessarily have to be faith-based to do that so i think there's some interesting mate, yeah. things to explore there the other I, I mean there was a similarity in the sense that um, no regulation and no further sort of um, dictats until 2024 i suspect that there's an instinctive alignment along on la, along that love it love it so i agree it. with so that we're, we're all in for that <laughs> one um and a guy i think you're probably getting the message already on that one um but the, the the real economy impacts how do we really demonstrate real economy impact because i think we're all at the point now where we're recognizing there are behavioral responses that are occurring to the pressures to drive issues like climate change and other ESG factors, and are people washing the troublesome assets out of their portfolios? Are they sort of avoiding the reality of actually this is going to take time and we've got to own these things? We need metrics that clearly demonstrate impact, but it's impact over time, and can we create the space to do that? And so I think that, for me, was it was a good point. But there were a number of other issues in that one, but it was, a, a, yeah, a smorgasbord, I'd say. A, a, a smorgasbord. Well, we're going to bring in the next uh, contributor now. Um, and this particular contributor, you're going to like this, very, very strongly kept to um, the brief and didn't provide us with a smorgasbord. It's straight to the point. Bring it on. Here is our next contributor. Hi, I'm Maria Nazarova-Doyle, and I'm Head of Pension Investments and Responsible Investments at Scottish Widows. If I were a pensions minister, the power would definitely go to my head. 
It's the most exciting job in pensions that makes a huge difference for millions of savers in the UK. Like Joe Biden, who with one stroke of his pen changed the humanity's trajectory away from certain climate doom by bringing the US back into the Paris Agreement, I would use my infinite power as a pensions minister to right a very significant wrong. I would pave the way and make it easy for billions of DC pension savings to flow away from daily stock exchange trading and into tangible projects that save lives, protect the planet and make the world a better place. Not to mention earning very good long-term returns for all of us with a DC pension so that one day we're actually able to retire. For many years, I've seen working group after working group, consultation after consultation, trying to get there in the roundabout way. And I believe the time has come to just do it. So my proposal is mandate an allocation to real economy for DC pensions in order for them to keep their tax privileges. Thank you for listening. Well, there we go. We've got in time, we've got clear arguments for one issue. And um, I think Maria makes a very powerful point. Absolutely. She's also nailed the brief. Thank you, Maria. You've made it very straightforward, very clear. Uh, a little bit worrying uh, on on some of the uh, the the power uh, the, the power hungriness. You know, it's like oh, no, we'll care, make sure careful. that yeah, no, yeah, we we need to make sure that Maria doesn't make it uh, into the pensions minister job uh, because of the, the amount of power she's maybe like uh, um, Galadriel trying to take the ring of power and uh, don't step through to the dark side, Maria. But no, stay on the asset owner side because you're doing a fantastic job. Uh, we definitely don't need you as a politician. Well, no, I, I mean, I think Maria's someone we wanted the podcast anyway because she, she is a leader in the field and um, she's definitely thought, thoughtful. Um, and she is right. I mean, the ministers do have power in their respective briefs. The question is whether they choose to use it. And I I. I think often the challenge is you're in that position for a very short amount of time. I think often ministers move very regularly, unfortunately, in the UK system. So what can you do in that time? Focus in on one clear idea. Maria's made a very good case, and it goes back to the point from the previous contributor about impact and actual impact in the real-world economy. How do we unlock that for average um, pension funds, um, uh, members to, to be able to have that and not simply just tracking tracking the market yeah, so I, I think it's a no-brainer and great great suggestion gets my thumbs up uh, yeah, it gets it gets my thumbs up as well uh we we spoke to a guy uh, about this same point uh i couldn't agree more this this idea that um that a a lifetime savings vehicle like a a, a defined contribution pension scheme um, needs to be daily priced and daily liquid. Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, you you're, you you've got a, a forty, maybe you know, maybe as long as fifty years. If you're if you're starting at twenty now, you're retire. You're going to be retiring at seventy. That's a fifty year savings scheme. You don't need it to be daily uh, liquid. So we can take parts of that and structure them in such a way that. Um, you know, those illiquid parts maybe can be transferred from um, from pension scheme to pension scheme if you choose to change your pension wrapper provider. Um, but there's no, no real need to be liquid. You know, if you do switch, maybe you can just take a year or two years before your illiquids uh, cash is, is transferred across. That's absolutely reasonable um so yeah it, it makes uh, it makes perfect sense there is a counter argument of course yep. um to this and and that is that uh, a lot of the illiquid stuff comes with um unusual charging structures yep. um you know a lot of real assets certainly private equity uh comes with uh, what we call generally like a two and twenty which is a, a very high uh, ongoing charge of around 2% and a performance fee as well, uh, often uh, as high as 20% or even higher, uh, of anything above a certain hurdle rate. Um, these things are expensive, and one of the, uh, one of the uh, impediments to that is that I believe, um, and someone from um, the Defined Contributions Landscape can maybe mention it on uh, LinkedIn posts or, or whatever, 
Um, I believe that there's a cost cap on uh, certain funds that can go into defined contribution pensions to stop that thing, and it's lower than uh, the vast, vast majority of real assets providers can provide. So we need to work out how to get around that. But it's got to be... But that sounds the kind of challenge that the minister could rise to. It absolutely Ministerially convened focused discussions around how do we get this open to a broader set of funds to be able to access i i, I yeah I, I see that's the kind of challenge guy could um em- embrace i think so too yeah and there's there's nothing wrong with a bit of a uh, well it, it's basically it's going to be a cap on profits for some of these hugely hugely profitable uh companies and you, you can kind of understand with private equity why you would want that charging structure because it is things like venture uh, venture capital to early stage. There's a lot of risk involved, and you know these partners are putting their own capital in, and, and you know they can lose it all. But things like infrastructure funds, which are like you know the modern equivalent of you know bond-like returns. There's no reason for for things like that. Yes, they might be a little bit complicated to run because they're um, you know real running physical real assets. But, you know, there's not a lot of risk there. You know, the cost should be fairly predictable. Uh, there's no reason to, to think that they should be as expensive as many of them are. We need to look at that. Yep, no, good. And uh, well done, Maria. That, that was uh, very good. Right, so we are halfway through our contributors. Uh, so I think this is probably a good time to break to our book of the week and the return of it's not, is it? Rory Sullivan. Oh, it certainly is. is. Rory, come on in. Welcome to Book of the Week with Rory Sullivan. Continuing a recurring theme of my book reviews, this week's review is We Don't Know Ourselves by Fintan O'Toole, the Irish, Irish journalist and writer. The book is a modern history. Essentially, it provides a, a year-by-year analysis of Ireland from 1958, when O'Toole was born, through to the present day. Um, what it, it does is, is, is probably for the first time, is it synthesizes what has really happened in Ireland since World War II. Um, and, and it also captures the scale of the social transformation. So, for example, in 1961, 45% of all the people born in Ireland between 1931 and 1936, so they were everybody aged between 25 and 30, of those 45% had left the country by, by in 1961. So basically, you had a country that was hemorrhaging its youth. You had a country that it was only in 1966 that pre-secondary education was introduced. Um, and the, the Minister for Education, Don O'Malley, um, introduced the bill without telling the Ministry for, of Finance or the Catholic Church. It's also, as many of you will be aware, um, a, a country that has had to come to terms with the, the evils uh, and behaviours of the Catholic Church. You know, the treatment of unmarried women, pedophile priests, the use of shame as an instrument of social control. It's also a country that in the 70s and 80s basically had a, a sort of a culture of, of um, patronage and power and of corruption. Being a fall government in the governments in the 70s and 80s, Charles Hawhey, etc. It also had the financial crisis. My wife is a psychiatrist and she said, do you know something? The double financial crisis and Ireland's economic collapse is probably the single most damaging psychological episode to hit Ireland because for the first time, the Irish have nobody else to blame except themselves. So, so Ireland is a country which has, I mean, it has clearly transformed you know, the, the Celtic tiger, the, the liberalisation of, of many social attitudes has clearly been transformative. It is probably also a country that is still dancing with its history. You know, and still dancing with some of the worst parts of that. For example, the this strong continued support for Sinn Fein. So, so Ireland is, a, is quite an, is a very interesting country. This book does a, a a wonderful job of of essentially teaching the history that we were never taught taught in schools about what has happened more or less since World War Two through to the present day. 
of itself and in and of itself, that would be enough to recommend this book. But there's another reason for recommending the book. This is actually the book that, that is essentially the psychological profile of Ireland. So if you are Irish and are trying to understand yourself, or if you are somebody who has a strong Irish connection, be it through your parents, husband or wife, partner, etc., this is the book for you. This is the book that explains the most fundamental questions about the Irish psyche. For example, how can Irish people be so open and yet so incapable of articulating emotion? How can Irish people be so independent in their voice and thinking and yet so willing to defer to authority? How can Irish people, when you deal with them, hold contradictory views? It's, 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 like an, it's an Alice in Wonderland world that we live in. How can we um, forget our history, act like it never happened, and then have it recur in all of our behaviours? How can parties of organisations like Fianna Fáil, the political party, how can the Catholic Church gain such power and then use it and be tolerated for so long? This book provides the answers to, to so many of those questions. So those of you who deal with Irish people and find them charming, attractive, fun, but God, so frustrating. This is the book for you. I think I would also conclude by, so that's the, the, the book as a psychological profile. I think the book also is a, uh, it's a morality lesson for all of us. It shows what happens when organisations or institutions are given too much power without accountability. I think Ireland has been lucky in that I think some of the, the most damaging force in our society have basically consumed themselves and destroyed themselves. Um, but I think both for Ireland and, and in all countries, we always need to be wary of placing too much trust in strong institutions, too much trust in, in individuals. Um, and we should certainly never forget the importance of accountability. This is a fantastic book. It is almost certainly going to be my book of the year for those of you who read my end of year book list. Um, but it's wonderful as a modern history, as a morality tale and as a psychological profile. Well, there you go, David. Uh, continuation of Rory's um, saunter through Irish literature. So he obviously liked that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've had a lot of Irish authors on uh, on so far. Another one, <laughs> Fintan. Uh, um, yeah, good. I mean, that sounded more like a therapy session, to be it honest, than a, a, than a book bit, yeah. review. But uh, yeah, more, more power your arm there, uh, Rory. Um we have had a suggestion that maybe the next book review has um, a slightly broader ge geographical grounding. Well, I have the next two book reviews in the can, and they are absolute crackers. Fantastic. Um, and they come as a pair, which is very, very interesting. Okay. So uh, listen out for them in the coming two podcasts. So moving uh, swiftly on, um, we have got our next contributor, um, and I'm going to go to our fund manager here, uh, Francesco, uh, from DWS. So take it away, uh, Francesco. Hello. Uh, my name is Francesco Curto, and I am the global head of research at DWS. Thank you, Minister, and to David and Adam for the opportunity to suggest an idea. If I were the minister... I would work with the Chancellor to ensure that the cheapest investments available to consumers are the sustainable ones and not the least sustainable ones, which is currently the case. Major investment indices do not make the difference between companies, whether they are sustainable or not. If the consumer wish to ensure that its capital goes towards companies that are changing and adopting sustainable models, then they face additional costs. This means that there is no incentive economically for companies to change. Consumers face costs to be sustainable. This makes no sense. The default cheapest option is to be not sustainable. When then we look at uh, you know, wh where do these uh, additional costs come from, you will find that a lot of additional money goes to data providers or in setting up the research and to get the tools that enable the investment industry 
to make sense of the maze that is sustainable investment. We at DWS, we are implementing a stronger strategic level of engagement with companies. The DWS passive team is also implementing engagement with index providers to try to change some of these. However, all of these processes, they are more expensive and ultimately they will impact consumer choice. At the practical level, we may have a solution. Uh, The solution is to have a polluter pays fee for non-sustainable investment funds and for non-sustainable ETFs. The receipts from these investments could be used for a multiplicity of purposes, including supporting investor engagement, helping companies and governments to transition to a net zero framework. It is uncertain what the cost of these uh, funds could look like, but people such as Willis, Towers, Watsons, they think that probably 25 basis points on the AUM you know, could be devoted just to stewardship. At a practical level, what could this idea look like? It could look like that the highest fees is for those funds that are actually not doing anything. Then there would be an intermediate fee for those funds that are managing the risk and opportunities from a financial perspective, what people call outside-in products. And then there would be no fees for those funds where there are so much additional costs in order to ensure that really those products are sustainable and have a positive impact on the economy and the world. What we think is that a stewardship fee of this type in the investment industry would be equivalent of a polluter pays principle in action. While there are many different legitimate questions on criteria for assessing funds and how the fee would be levied, we believe this would help, really make a tangible help in tilting the playing field in favour of a more sustainable allocation of capital, which currently is clearly not the case. I look forward to debating this idea with you. Thank you for listening to me and have a good day. Well, there we go. Our fourth contributor. How did he do on the basics? Um, uh, he, he missed the brief on time. Okay. Um, so uh, thank you very much for the contribution, uh, Francesco. Um, and like both me and Adam, you, uh, you clearly like the sound of your own voice and enjoy speaking for longer than you need to on every subject. It's something that we both suffer from, isn't it, Adam? I don't know what you're talking about, David, to be honest. I've never had that allegation levelled against me. Never, never, never at all. Never. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, why are you putting I'm, a mirror in front of me at the yes, moment? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, look, Francesco, we, we know that um, challenge, but nonetheless. Um, it should be, I'm going to point out at the moment that Francesco was not the worst. The worst um, in this was actually uh, a lady called Sarah Wilson from uh, Minerva, who, um, when given a 90-second brief, produced over seven minutes of uh, of talk um and sarah uh probably uh, good quality though it was great quality so good quality in fact that rather than putting it in the show uh we're just going to invite her on for a future episode because that woman can talk uh and she's highly opinionated so she's going to be a great podcast guest well i look forward to that so on francesca's um idea i mean fundamentally it was a it was a tax on um polluters and and trying to sort of create an incentive for funds to well, basically, yeah, re- invert the current st- structure. Yeah, like, like, like the uh, like the equivalent of putting a carbon tax on heavy emitters to try and uh, bring in uh, less heavy emitters and, and level the playing field a bit. So, I can see where the uh, where the idea comes from. Yeah, yeah. No, I get the logic of it, and I mean, I mean it's basically a recognition that at the moment, um, the costs, the externalities of a lot of behaviours of companies and and. Those that are invested in them aren't reflected in the reality of of those companies, and therefore they're able to um, carry on, and we therefore pay the price in wider society. And he's trying to suggest a route for the minister to engage with colleagues at the Treasury to to rebalance that. And, I mean, 
the the principle of it i i get what the main argument and i agree with that i think that we have to find ways we have to not simply rely on 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 our stewardship to to get there i think we've got to use all the levers possible i think regulation taxation etc these are powerful levers however i'm not i'm yeah i'm i think a it will be hard ask for the minister at the moment i think given the current narrative in, in the uk but i don't think this is something that we shouldn't be engaging with yeah i, I think it's a principle working out how to um how to levelize the costs of um sustainable versus i'm not going to use the word non-sustainable i'm going to use the word traditional um because you know i don't think when we look at development the opposite of sustainable isn't unsustainable the sustainability definition from the Brundtland commission uh it's not like it's not the the clear thing that uh um you know where the opposite is unsustainable it's that there there is some impact on future generations um it's not necessarily there's a subtlety around it anyway we're talking uh we're into the weeds on language there already um the the issue we've got there is that there are a lot of uh fund management houses out there that do do a lot of stewardship and a lot of good engagement and stuff, even on the traditional projects. In, fa- in fact, Francesco mentioned himself yep. that the DWS passive funds, um, you know, are part of the engagement program. And if you look at the LGIMs and the, the Black Rocks of the world, you know, LGIM, a lot of the stuff that LGIM runs is kind of traditional equity, a lot of uh, trackers, a lot of... Um, indexed funds and yet they are known to be very strong in uh, engagement Um, but that's strong in engagement on traditional things so how do you um, how would you levy a stewardship fee on a traditional Elgin fund knowing that um, that they were doing the work in background David do we still have the gong because I, I mean, we do have the gong. It's because uh, I've got so many things here. It's on a different. Page. Give me, give me a second. It's the the honk that you're looking for. Oh no, sorry. We're yes, gonna honk. The, the gong. The honk. Are we ready? Yeah. Do, you, do you want to press the button? Actually, this is my first. Blue time. button there. Press the. Did it feel fantastic? Did it feel good? Actually, yeah. that felt like. Do you the, like the power? The honk of power. Exactly. <laughs> this deck's great, isn't it? Uh, go on. What did you honk me for? Well, actually, you may now need to um, remove that honk. But what was I was just challenging you on Elgin for the fact that we haven't had a honk for a while. Oh yeah, Elgin's their name, um, but uh, it, it stands that. for uh, Legal and General Investment Management, and they're the management. Uh, it's a investment pool, it was a pool call, but we haven't had one for ages. Elgin. So there yeah. we go. But there we go. No, that's fine. We yes. can do a reverse honk. But I, look, I think his idea is fundamentally right. At the moment, this, this, the system we're, we're judging sustainability products against. This, the the traditional yeah. and the traditional is one that doesn't account for climate doesn't account for a lot yeah. of these things and actually we need to completely invert that when we created the the the, the, the FTSE TPI climate transition index um, that was always been judged against what the standard offering was and actually the standard offering needs to now be judged against that because that is seeking to embed the impacts of climate yep. targets of companies, etc. And that's the baseline, and that's where we're society striving for. And actually, the traditional is one that isn't. So, therefore, I think there is a fundamental point in the one that Francesco makes that I agree with. Absolutely. The application here, I think we need to look at that in more detail, and the minister's probably the person that could have those conversations yeah. i think there's ways in which this can be done it's, it's all it all comes down to that that race to the bottom in the on the cost curve Bec- asset management has always been uh, an overly expensive and extremely profitable area and then we had um the uh, black rocks and vanguards of the world uh, come in and look at indexing and, and very low cost and then you had a race a race to the bottom on cost which to some extent you know there's uh a, there's an associated race to the bottom on everything else because you're having to take costs out uh, elsewhere in in the business to be able to provide things at such a low fee. And that's great for the consumer. Um, But as we spoke to, again, going back to uh, Elgin, we we spoke to Sonia about this, we spoke to Sandy Boss about this at BlackRock, that the, the work that we're doing is naturally inflationary because, you know, you need teams to do this work. You need people, you need to do reporting you need as, as francesco say to pay data providers for all this data and it is it can get it's very very, very expensive. expensive 
Um, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a perennial issue for us. Um, so uh, yeah, let's move on to our next uh, contributor. How many, we, how many more have we got? We have go? got two more. Two so more we to have, go. Okay. Uh, we're going to go to uh, Mike Clark, who is a consultant okay. at uh, Ario Advisory. Take it away, Mike. Good day, Minister. Good day, Guy. Um, my name is Mike Clark. Uh, firstly, I'll just remind you, we did meet, go back to Paris 2019. You gave a speech at PRI. And this guy, uh, I guess, doorstepped you as you left the room. You were heading back, I think, for a Brexit vote. Um, I pitched this idea of a Glasgow Pensions Alliance. You thought for a second and said, go for it. So, in fact, you've got a stake in GFAMS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance Net Zero. Um, as, uh, as that idea grew and uh, eventually became defense. So the question is, what would I do in your shoes? Well, the first thing I'd do tomorrow is I would uh, put out a press release. Uh, you recall back at the end of last year, you issued an excellent letter to 44 investment managers. Where when I spoke to your team last week, I think you'd only got 13 replies. So you can list the ones who have replied, you can thank them for replies, and you can put 31 names in the appendix and move that on. Uh, I hope you're going to publish the replies. Uh, if you can't, I know you like lead tables. If you can't evaluate them, then um, if, if the letters are public, I'm sure we can persuade Share Action or somebody to evaluate them. So that moves investment managers on. Now let's look at, um, let's look at investor consultant. Um, as you know, very influential, uh, necessary to advise many of the pension schemes in the UK. Um, why don't, well, no, sorry, I would, I'm in your shoes. I would write a letter to the chair of ICSWG, you'll know the Investment Consultant Sustainability Working Group. Uh, in that letter, there's a range of questions uh, based in part on the recommendations in the Task Force of Pensions in Voting Implementation. The letter has a range of questions and you ask each member of ICSWG uh, to take that letter back to their investment consulting firms and reply to the question. Again, make them public. Consultants are important. Um, a few other ideas, don't have time for them now, but here's, here's one big picture thing. Um, you'll be familiar with the economic climate scenarios. Uh, one of the problems, uh, they, they're great to get people going, but one of the problems is that the economic assumptions underpin them are a bit difficult. So um, it is a view of quite a few of us, a, a growing conversation that the GDP losses in those climate scenarios are just too low. So if that's of any interest to your officials, um, again, do get in touch uh, via David and Adam if need be, and we can have that conversation because I think uh, there are some risks. Um, the Treasury probably thinks that the PRA has got banks uh, sorted. Uh, that's not necessarily the case, especially if you read the PRA's uh, climate change adaptation report that was published last year. So, few thoughts. Um, thanks very much for taking the time to listen to this. And from me, that's over and out. Thank you, Mike. And uh, I know Mike well, so declare an interest. And uh, um, he, he is prolific. And yeah, he, he's very effective. Yes, well, uh, when, when Mike's pension minister, I will be making sure to doorstep him at every, uh, <laughs> at every opportunity uh, so he knows exactly what it's like. <laughs> yeah so um well i'm just so, so he was really suggesting to focus in on the consultants so, and, and obviously publish a list of the the investment funds and that have responded to the minister so a bit of uh, naming and shaming on those that haven't good idea and then judging judging those responses we, I, we, we like naming shaming and transparency and, uh, yep, that sounds yeah, good we like being judgmental on this podcast we're all all <laughs> no, in favor of that no, no, no. <laughs> and then um publish and then then basically initiate a similar undertaking with the consultants and i think that that to me obviously sounds like to be honest that sounds quite a low cost straightforward intervention that would be something that the minister could easily do um and yeah I, absolutely I, well that sustainability working group uh, at, at the consultants has been has been great um going back to, to talking about the asset owners diversity charter they they were um central really in uh, helping us to to make that a, a reality by supporting that and providing support to uh, to Helen and I and, and the rest of the group um, without trying to steer. They, they saw a clear uh, thing that they could jump in on the back of uh, and it would be a benefit to all players. Um, and 
I like the way they think uh, in that group. Um, so, yep. yeah. So we're, we're ticking that one. And then the last one, David, on GDP? GDP deflators on scenario analysis. Well, you know, Mike, um, Mike centers in on a pet hate of mine, which is scenario analysis, because scenario analysis is uh, very, very... Um, it's very, very critical what kind of inputs you're putting into yep. your model uh, and what inputs you're putting in to the way that the model works. And as, as Mike says, that he thinks that in a lot of these things, the D GDP deflators as a result of climate change are incorrect. He, he could well be right. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, what I do know is that these things are a bit black boxy and you know talking as an uh, as a direct investment manager you know i like to get right in dig into the numbers and work out you know if i tweak this what happens if i tweak that what happens you know where are the sensitivities in these models and a lot of these models you can't do you're just buying something in blindly throwing numbers into it and blindly getting numbers out uh, and we we've, we've discussed this before on um, uh, implied temperature ratings you know, you, you throw in a few things and you get out, oh, this portfolio is aligned to 2.6 degrees. No one knows why. It's somewhere hidden in the model. Yeah. We need better models. I think the, the thing is, it's not... I, I, I'm going to disagree with, with Mike on this. It's not better deep GDP deflators and better GDP deflator numbers that we need. It's better scenario analysis models. And we need people who have got the mathematical wherewithal to understand those models and be able to apply them to the money that their fiduciaries for and you know quite frankly i think we're lacking that uh in uh, our part of the industry i think you know there's a lack of rigor sometimes mathematical rigor um and financial literacy in ri circles there i said it well there you go well look i i so basically shots fired i've not shots got, <laughs> i wish i had a, 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 a gun sound on this but no shots fired so there, but two out of three and the third broad principle raises a well, raises a more fundamental question around scenarios. So, um, Mike, Mike, sort of two easy ones for the minister to consider, and the third one I think calls for deeper thought around the use of scenarios. And it does. It's a broader. It's a broader yeah. consultation. I did particularly like um, Mike's retcon there, though, of uh, Guy Opperman being the uh, progenitor of G fans. Uh, well done, Guy. I, I had no idea. So, uh, bravo. Who knew that a, in a passing conversation you could launch such a thing? Uh, Mark Carney, you usurper you. Uh, <laughs> right, so... Excellent. Uh, moving on the last to, one, I think. It is. It's our last one. Um, and uh, this one was quite funny because I received a message from a chap called Steve. And he said, oh, uh, my colleague Dan... Uh, who we've already heard from today. My colleague Dan is, has told me about this podcast thing that you're doing, and I'd like to record a bit for it. I said, oh, sure, Steve, just record something and send it in. Thought nothing else of it, really. And Steve then from pensions. Steve, Steve from Steve, Steve from LCP. He's a partner at LCP. Yes, Steve, great. And then clocked. Ah, he's not just any old Steve. He's Sir Steve Webb, former. Pensions Richard's Minister <laughs> under the um, the, the price of one coalition government of uh, of um, David, David Cameron. Cameron, lol. Um, <laughs> right, so let's bring in Sir Steve, former Pensions Minister. It's easy to criticise the Pensions Minister, uh, as I know very well from my own personal experience, but harder to say what you do instead. So I think it's good that Guy Offerman has challenged people to set out what their agenda would be if they sat at his desk. So I'm happy to respond and to misquote Tony Blair, my three priorities are contributions, contributions, contributions. As Minister it's easy to get distracted with all sorts of issues, charging structures, charge caps, all sorts of other things that are important but second order. What really matters is the fact that simply not enough money is going into DC pensions and there's no real urgency to change the situation. At LCP, we published a report a few months ago called The Ski Slope of Doom, cheery topic, and basically described the way that defined benefit pensions at retirement are collapsing, but the DC cavalry is nowhere to be seen. At current contribution levels, it will be decades before the typical worker gets a meaningful DC pension. And in the meantime, there's a risk of a chasm as DB retreats and DC doesn't arrive. And I would suggest three things to get contributions up. 
first implement the 2017 review. That's not too controversial at the start of 2022, is it? That would enrol people at 18 and make everything from the first pound pensionable on the mandatory rate of 8%. Second, I'd level up, to coin a phrase, the employer and employee mandatory contribution. It's very strange that firms only have to put in 3% and workers have to put in 5 We should gradually level that up to 5 plus 5. That would give you 10% going in, extra money without any added risk of opt-outs. And then third, I draw on the behavioural experience that we've had so far with auto-enrolment and have auto-escalation. Simply put, when you get a pay rise, your contribution rate is nudged up unless you opt out. We know it works. It works well in the States. It means that you don't require people coming in as 18 to put huge contributions in. But as they get pay rises, as they can afford more, their contribution rate goes up. We need to do these three things and we need to start that process now. Over to you, Mr. Opperman. Cool. Well, how did he do on time first? Spot on. Spot on. So he, he you, an ex-minister got the brief and delivered the brief then. Absolutely. Yep. Nailed it. Kept it simple. Worked on one, one thing and gave us a bit of detail, just enough. Lovely job. Top marks to Sir Steve Webb. So slope of doom, the, the chasm. Ski, the ski slope of doom and the chasm. I mean, we're in the middle of the Winter Olympics. I've seen some pictures of this fake snow uh, alpine skiing in uh, in China, you know, and that immediately made me think the ski slope of doom. No, uh, absolutely. Well, we've got snow on the hills outside Edinburgh today, so it's quite nice uh, from the top of the after seats seeing all that. But um, well, look, he, he basically zeroed in on three things from the, the, the 2017 review. Enroll at 18, level up employer and employees' contributions, and then draw on behaviour with auto-escalation as your pay increases. I just they all just sound complete slam dunks as far as I'm concerned. They they, yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely, uh, Mr. Opperman, um, definitely uh, look at that. I, I'm sure that's uh, in his his briefing notes somewhere already. Uh, it, it can't be that hard to implement. It really can't. Um, you know, as, as we know, we, we, we speak to our, our colleagues uh, in uh, the defined contribution space all the time. The number one. Uh, thing you can do to increase the power of your pension is to pay more into your pension um but as sarah was saying in uh her unreleased uh audio uh, and things that we'll probably dig into more when we've got her on um there is a trust issue around pensions there's an understanding issue you know and a lot of people would rather invest in property um and and, and buy to let and things for something tangible that they understand um, and that scandals in the past around kind of mirror uh, Robert Maxwell and the equitable life scandal and things like that. Although we have, you know, we are continuously cleaning up the industry, those things stay long in people's memories. But I, I, I think you could you can knit some of these points from all of the contributions together, deliver on those three, but do so that when you're at the age of eighteen, you, you're buying into a you're starting to build your pension fund, one that contributes positively to the world, one that is genuinely sort of invested in the real economy and change and yeah. and all of the things that I feel people want to see yeah. and something that builds your future um, that that you have when you come to retirement that hasn't negatively impacted. So I think that those three are the foundational pieces to a number of the other contributors in, in today's um, set of um, challenges for the minister. Absolutely. So what we're saying, Adam, is if, if we were pensions minister, co-pensions minister, obviously. Job share. Yeah. Job share, yeah, because modern world and all that. Um, what we would do is we would have sustainability as the default, we would have um, easier um, contributions into real assets, um, the illiquids of the world, uh, noting that they don't need to be liquid for such a long-term pensions saving, that we would have uh, voting uh, for all um, and that uh, the voting needs of um, the different parties uh, the different stakeholders could be reflected in asset manager voting. And I think we're going to have Maria on at some point. Yep. And we're going to talk about that uh, topic in particular because she's been leading on that. Um, and we're going to have better, uh, higher rates of um, contributions, uh, auto-enrollment at 18 at a higher rate of employer contribution with 
a, um, a nudge escalator as you get your pension, uh, as, as you get more money as you progress your career. That sounded about right. Anything else to add, so. well, I just my say, fellow co-minister? I, I, I think for me, all the ingredients have been demonstrated in many of the funds um, that that we work with, and yeah. some of which have appeared on this podcast. Some of which we've referenced. I think the ingredients of what good in this industry is in leadership that's already out there, and I think it's about consolidating that, enabling that, and then building that industry to really be proud of. And I, yeah, I, I think the minister is one that's full of energy and and agenda, recognizing to get that balance from a first few contributors to sort of give us some space to deliver on what we've already got to do. Yep. But let's build that 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 industry, and I think those that point at the end yep. really is well made. That's it. We're, so. we're we're working on doing our part, and now there's there's bits for the government to do. So that's great. So let's let's call it a day there. Um, thank you very much for your time today. I know we've gone a, a little bit over our traditional uh, time, so I hope you, the listeners, have uh, still with us, are still with <laughs> us, or have been listening to it at, uh, at one point five times. I think you can do that. And Adam and I speak slowly enough that uh, we just sound can a little you really bit. Do that? You can do that. Yeah, we sound quite that. hilarious. Right. Uh, I know that Patrick from uh, Alliance will tend to listen to us on his jog right. at. Uh, at 1.5 speed because uh, he's just not got any time for our waffle. <laughs> I've got, I'm so technology useless. I didn't know you could do QR codes until the, the, the whole pandemic. There you go. To get into a there you go. Well, the, there it's, it, so you're going to be great because we're recording our next <laughs> podcast on Monday with uh, Anna McDonald and uh, Christine Chow. On big tech. On, on technology, big yeah. tech. It's my, my, my hobby. You're, you're, <laughs> you're going to be learning lots, I think, there. So... Uh, uh, looking forward to that, and I hope you, the uh, the listeners, are looking forward to that as well. So thank you to uh, you, our listeners, uh, for staying with us so long. If you enjoyed this episode, please feed back to us. It is something different. We've, we've never tried this kind of way of doing things before. If you liked it, let us know. If you didn't like it, let us know. Um, you can get us through LinkedIn uh, and, and the usual channels. You know who we are. You know how to get to us. Um, but but let us know and if you would like to see something like this again um, as reluctant as I am because it took me a hell of a lot of work to get everything lined up uh, I'd be happy for uh, to do it if our listeners really um, enjoy it and valued it so with that in mind uh, I'm going to thank the contributors for today contact details for all of them will be available in the show notes uh, so feel free to reach out to any of them on LinkedIn uh, and with that, goodbye, and we will see you soon.